You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today we will discuss a very machete murder. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I am so excited to be back here with all of you. Christmas is just a few short days away, and I honestly can't believe it. I really feel like this whole month, actually, if we're being real, this whole year has just flown by. We still have presents to wrap, and I just barely got those stinking stocking stuffers. Those are the suckers that I always forget. I always space it when it comes to those freaking stocking stuffers. I feel like it's because I never really know what to put in them. I always just kind of throw like a bunch of candy and toothbrush in there and call it a day. Not that my kids need any more candy, but food is just such an easy thing to fill those bad boys up. And I've just learned that you've got to embrace the good and the bad and the ugly of the holiday season and sometimes the ugly means that sugar crash that comes in the afternoon of Christmas Day. Um, Just a bit of housekeeping before we begin our episode. If you are not already following me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved, would you grant me a Christmas miracle on 34th Street and go over there and click the follow button? It would be the absolute best. I promise to not annoy you with incessant stories and posts. I typically just post the day that an episode drops with a few images or a video clip that I feel is pertinent to understanding the case. I also pop in on stories very rarely, um, to just usually get an answer for like a poll or something. Uh, you can comment your thoughts, theories, and opinions on the post that I post each week about the case. You can DM me a case suggestion, which we covered one last week from a listener named Val. And I am so appreciative when you guys send in those case suggestions because I love covering cases that y'all are passionate about. And most of the time they're cases that I've never heard about. Like the one that we covered last week about Melissa Brand in in Lorton, Virginia. If you need more mysteries still unsolved in your life, I like you already. And you can go to my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. There you can binge all 62 of my episodes. Woohoo! Just a little warning, today's episode is a little heavy, so if you're worried that this might dampen your holiday spirits in a way in which you won't be able to recover, then I don't know, maybe pause this one and jump back to episode 59 about a really weird road trip, or perhaps episode 48 that discusses the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. If those don't tickle your fancy, then maybe try episode 30 with some accounts of the Bermuda Triangle. All right, with that little mini disclosure in place, let's dive in. Now, to begin, this machete murder took place on U.S. soil. Does anyone want to take a guess as to where this machete murder took place? Do you want a hint? Only the craziest and most insane state that we citizens of the good old U.S. of A. have to offer. If you guessed California, you'd be wrong because it's clearly Florida. Florida, why are you the way that you are? Please stop what you're doing, Florida. You're making the rest of the country look bad. Have you ever done the Florida birthday challenge where you write your birthday into Google with the words Florida man and look to see what comes up? I did it, and I'll share a few of these glorious gems with you right now. Okay, so I was born on August 26th, so here 
we go. These are all real headlines, by the way. Okay. Florida man claiming to be God arrested after touching people. What the freaking heck? Okay, next one. Florida man masturbates for shoppers. There's a lot of questions about that one. Were shoppers requesting that he did it? Or was he like doing it as like to try and be a good Samaritan? I don't know. There's like a lot of confusion in that. Next one. Florida man on Flocka, which I learned are like a slang term for bath salts. I didn't know that before. But anyways, Florida man on Flocka thinks he's possessed and strips down naked. And those are just a few. There were so many more. But seriously, do the challenge. And I would encourage you to write a comment on my post for today's episode. It's very, very entertaining. All right, moving on. Athalia Ponsell Lindsley was born on July 25th, 1917, to a wealthy family in Toledo, Ohio. She spent her childhood on the Isle of Pines, an island off the coast of Cuba. She moved to New York City when she became a famous American model, Broadway dancer, political activist, and a television personality on a show called Winner Takes All. In her old age, she moved to St. Augustine, Florida, because she missed her beloved beach so much. She wanted to be closer to the water, as that is what made her feel complete. It seems the fame might have gotten to Athalia's head, though, because although she was famous in her own right, she was also famous for something else. Everyone in St. Augustine hated Athalia. Before and even after her death, geez, people described her as a bitter, crotchety, vindictive, and vengeful old lady, and so, yeah, it doesn't seem like Athalia was winning any popularity contests. She had a lot, and I mean a lot, of haters. In fact, in 1970, Athalia ran for a state senator's position, and she lost by a landslide. She just seemed to rub people the wrong way. In 1973, Athalia married the former mayor of St. Augustine, a man by the name of James Jinx, that's like his nickname, Lindsley. (laughs) Only in Florida could you have a mayor of a town with his name in quotes and the name Jinx, of all things. Was that his nickname because he was a notorious flip-flopper? Why, yes, I do believe in equal public education for all gets elected. Jinx, gotcha. I don't give a crap about public education. (laughs) But one tends to wonder where that name Jinx came from. James Lindsay was also a real estate agent. James and Athalia had been married for four months, but the two continued to reside in separate homes. Athalia lived at 124 Marine Street on the Matanzas River, while James alternated between his two homes, one which was a historic home originally built by his ancestors on St. George Street and another on Anastasia Island. Many people found the fact that they lived separately during which was essentially their honeymoon period kind of odd, but Athalia had an answer for this. She wanted to sell her home in order to move in with James, but she also didn't want to leave the home abandoned, so she decided to live in it while she tried to sell it. It looks like a lovely home. I can't imagine why she wouldn't be able to sell it, other than perhaps she and her husband were not very good at their real estate jobs, or people began realizing that 
no one wants to live in Florida because it's sketchy. And do I need to read those headlines to you again? Like, seriously. Anyway, on January 23rd, 1974, Athalia and her husband met up at a local grocery store to shop together. James put his groceries that he was going to take to his house and his car, and Athalia put her groceries in her trunk, and they both left the parking lot to return to their respective homes. Athalia got to her home, unloaded her groceries, and decided that it would be a good time to take her bird out on a walk. Yep, you heard me right. She was going to take her bird outside and go for a walk. (laughs) Only in Florida. Between the minutes of 5 o'clock p.m. and 5.15 p.m., Athalia Lindsay was attacked on the front steps of her Marine Street home. She was attacked by a white, middle-aged man wearing a white dress shirt and dark dress pants. According to Dr. Arthur Schwartz, a medical examiner for the St. Augustine Police Department, quote, she was struck nine times with a machete on her hand, head, and arm. One of her fingers had been severed, and she was nearly decapitated, end quote. The only thing missing from her home was her pet blue jay that she had been taking for a walk. And you want to know something sad? This blue jay was never found. Never. Also, a blue jay, is that a typical bird to keep as a pet? I've heard of like a pet parakeet, a cockatoo, a parrot, but a blue jay? But this is good to know because I'm always getting swarms of blue jays in my backyard every spring. Maybe next year I'll trap one and give it to my kids. (laughs) Just kidding. I've got enough poop to clean up. Towards the end of the attack, an 18-year-old neighbor boy named Locke McCormick heard the sounds of commotion and screaming. After the perpetrator left and Locke and his mother found it safe, they went next door to find Athalia lying in a pool of blood and immediately called the police. This is when things began to derail. Police arrived at the scene and knew exactly what weapon had been used, strictly based on the state of Athalia's body. They knew her injuries had to have been committed using a machete. Now, I don't know about you, but here in Utah, if someone was to be murdered with a machete, it would make the suspect pool a little bit smaller. Like, a lot. I assume that that's how it would be in most places. However, we're not in most places. We're in Florida. And Floridians be crazy, and it's actually quite common for most Floridians to carry a machete with them in the trunk of their car. They say it's to help them get through unwanted fauna. I say it may be useful to help them get rid of an unwanted athalia. Residents of St. Augustine and prosecutors of the case say that the crime scene was tainted from the very beginning. The chief of police asked his subordinates to hose off the blood on the sidewalk because he didn't want to scare any neighbors with the scene. Oh, okay. Um, so just all of your evidence, you're just going to wash it away. Huh? Okay. That's uh, pretty interesting. Ugh, what is this? Blood? Evidence? Disgusting. Wash it now, quickly. What an idiot. Okay, so because of this and for other reasons, many residents believe that the St. Augustine Police Department was part of this, like, elaborate 
cover-up. Athalia had a friend and neighbor named Frances Bemis. When Bemis learned about the death of, like, supposedly her best friend and the fact that it was an unsolved case so that the murderer may still be walking the streets, Frances Bemis seemed a little bit indifferent towards the whole thing. She adamantly proclaimed that, quote, St. Augustine is the safest place that I've ever lived and I will continue to live here. She continued, I love to go on walks and this isn't going to stop me from taking my nightly walk, end quote. And it didn't stop her. In fact, she went on a walk the very night of her best friend's murder. And a couple months later, on November 3rd, 1974, just a little over like 10 months since her best friend Athalia was murdered, Bemis went out for one of her little nightly strolls and never returned. She was quite old and frail, so people feared something awful had happened to her, and the police were called right away. Frances's body was found the very next day in a vacant lot very close to where Athalia had been murdered. When found, Frances had been beaten to death, some of her clothes had been ripped from her body, um, although the medical examiner did find no evidence of a sexual assault. So it also seemed as though the suspect had attempted to burn the body, presumably to destroy evidence, but it hadn't worked out, so the perpetrator had just, like, given up and left. This doesn't surprise me at all, since the St. Augustine Police Department seems all too happy to hose down evidence, so I can see that the, like, I can, like, understand why the perpetrator, like, wouldn't mind, like, leaving some evidence, because he knows that the St. Augustine Police is like, evidence, evidence, just wash it away. Apparently, Frances Bemis had hinted to knowing more about the crime that killed her best friend, although she never revealed anything of value. But is it possible that the killer took out Frances to keep her quiet? Just in case Frances really did know something. Police chief at the time, Virgil Stewart, did not believe that the two deaths were connected, which only seemed to solidify to the public that their police department was not only incompetent, but could also possibly be part of this giant cover-up. Because of the length of time this case has gone unsolved, and the fact that Athalia Lindsley was a famous rich person, this case is swarming with theories. It would be impossible to go over each and every single one without creating a podcast that was like a seven-part episode. So, I chose a few that I think are the most credible, and we're going to discuss those today. First, we have the theory that Athalia's husband, James Lindsay, was responsible for her murder. James was an easygoing man who had served two terms as mayor of St. Augustine, and the public loved him. Police always questioned the husband, so he was asked by police investigators if he and Athalia had been experiencing any marital problems. He said no. They were enjoying their blissful honeymoon, albeit in two separate homes, but no, they were not having any issues. This claim was contradicted by Athalia's sister, who had received letters from Athalia where Athalia had written, quote, Jimmy is a complete leech. He is a complete liar, end quote. This after only four months of marriage. So yeah. Before Athalia's death, she also changed the locks of her home, and there were there was gossip among community members that the crime scene was hosed down in order to protect Jimmy, the beloved former mayor. They believe that during his terms of serving as a mayor, he had made friends in the police department. Had those friendships run so deep that the police department would be willing to let a killer roam free? 
Elizabeth Randall, an author of a book written about this case, says, quote, James became exhausted and overwhelmed by all the rumors surrounding him after Athelia's death, end quote. Well, sorry, not sorry. When there's an unsolved murder case and you're the husband with a potential motive, it kind of goes with the territory that people will be looking at you until it's proven that you didn't do it. It's just how the cookie crumbles, Jinx. During a trial, not James's trial, but more on that in a little bit, James told the jury that he owned a machete that looked very similar to the one used in killing his wife. He had turned it into the police himself. Jimmy said that he usually kept a machete in the trunk of his car. At the trial, James was shown the machete that was used to murder Athalia, and James could neither confirm nor deny whether or not it was indeed his machete. He said, quote, I'm sorry, I just don't know. All machetes look the same to me, end quote. According to Randall's book, there is a 15 to 20 minute gap in James's alibi, the exact span of time when Athalia was being murdered on her porch. She believes it is entirely possible that James could have followed his wife home, murdered her, and then gone back to his own home. My personal opinion? I don't think James was involved. James knew Athalia and knew her well. She was his wife, after all. There are so many more private ways that he could have tricked her and then killed her. I think it's just like far too brazen for a husband to kill his wife on their front porch. Why would he do that when he could just lure her out on this like romantic boat ride and like, I don't know, push her off or something? No, no. I'm sorry. I wholeheartedly believe that the reason Athalia's killer murdered her when and where they did is because this was the only way that they could get to Athalia. Also, can we just talk about how terrifying it is that if you happen to have a 15 to 20 minute gap in your schedule, 15 to 20 minutes where no one sees you or interacts with you and an alibi can't really be established, this automatically makes you a killer in the eyes of the law. I mean, holy crap, I've been sitting here alone in this tiny closet that I record for about 40 minutes. I hope I'm not tied to the scene of a crime somehow because I'd get taken in for questioning and the officers would be like, where were you on December 14th between the hours of 6 and 7? And I'd be like, uh, I know this is going to sound bad, but I was sitting in my closet alone writing a true crime podcast. They retort, is there anyone who can confirm that you were, in fact, writing a podcast in your room and that you didn't sneak out of your window and kill Mr. Old Billy down the street? Um, no. Cuffer. Yeah. This is why it is in your best interest to stay so busy and so social that you'll never be accused as a murderer. As an introvert, this is going to be a hard task for me. The second theory is that Athalia's neighbor, Alan Stanford, murdered her. There was a lot of tension between the two neighbors. So much tension. Could you perhaps cut it with a machete? Athalia, like mentioned before, was kind of a woman who liked to march to the beat of her own drum. She wasn't the most tactful. She was quite curt. She grew up wealthy with like servants and crap. So she was used to giving orders and having things done her way. Compromise was not a word Athalia was familiar with. Well, Athalia loved animals, and she would collect strays from anywhere she could. At one point, she had one blue jay, seven dogs, a couple of rabbits, and even a goat. This caused a lot of noise. 
so much so that in the year prior to her death, the Stanfords and her neighbors on the opposite side, the McCormicks, had both filed several complaints against her, resulting in Agatha receiving a $50 fine, which adjusted for inflation would be about $350 today. Needless to say, Athalia was pretty pissed, so she took out a map of her property, and wouldn't you know, <laughs> some of the Stanford's trees were on her property. Oh, no problem. I'll just hack these down myself to pieces. Alan Stanford was apparently so angry with Athalia when he came home and all of his trees had been cut down that he yelled out to her, Woman, I'll kill you. At the time, Alan Stanford was the manager of St. John's County, the county where both Alan and Athalia res resided. Athalia suggested to the county commission four times when she appeared before them, telling him that she didn't feel like Stanford was qualified for this position that he was serving in, and that he had threatened to kill her on several occasions. This, of course, made Alan very angry, because not only was Athalia attacking him at home, and hacking down his trees, but now she was literally attacking him at work. This is what some may call a strained relationship. People, you don't want to be like that with your neighbors. Try to have a bit of decorum with them. These people literally live feet away from you, so I don't know. Tread lightly and play nice. We, I mean, personally, we've had times when neighbors have just been like a little bit obnoxious, but sometimes you just have to like let bygones be guy bygones in order to keep the peace. Sure, Alan seemed fishy, but with all of these allegations being so public, I think it would be pretty risky for him to kill her after she and like a buttload of witnesses at a commissioner's meeting had threatened to kill her. Perhaps someone with a distaste for Athalia and a knowledge of this feud possibly used it to their advantage and attempted to frame Alan? Hmm... Anything's possible. But hold on to your booties, because this is where the story gets wild. When Locke McCormick, the teenaged boy who shouted to his mother when he heard Athalia scream, he said, quote, Mr. Sanford is hitting Mrs. Ponsel, end quote, which was Athalia's maiden name before she got married to James four months previously. McCormick later expanded that he didn't really get a good look at the face of the suspect, but that he has, had assumed that it was Alan Stanford based on the clothing and the stature of the assailant. He said the man was wearing dark slacks and a white button-down shirt, which, by the way, <laughs> is a really bad uniform if you're planning on killing somebody with a machete. Don't wear a white shirt to a murder. <laughs> you wear dark clothes. I don't know, to hide the fact that, you've, that you're like covered in blood. Locke McCormick also said that when the beating had ended, the man walked towards the Stanford home before jumping the cement wall that separated Athalia and Allen's properties. This was confirmed when police came to the scene and followed a blood trail, which ended on the other side of the wall. So, this doesn't look good for Allen. Based on the comment I made before that no one in their right mind would go to a premeditated murder wearing a white shirt, I wonder, I wonder... If Mr. Sanford had seen Athalia coming out of her home and he like just grabbed a machete to kind of like scare her because she was causing him all this grief at his job and might even possibly cost him his job based on the things that she was claiming. So maybe he brought this machete as like a scare tactic, but then Athalia, who we know is like quick-witted and like doesn't have much tack and quick-tempered, and she just like seems to know how to push people's buttons, made a comment to Stanford. And whatever that comment was, 
just enraged him so much. And before you know it, he had killed her. So not premeditated, because if you're going to premeditate a murder of your neighbor, you're probably not going to do it during dinner time on your neighbor's front porch with no disguise whatsoever. I don't know. It just seems like whatever this was, it seems more of like an act of opportunity. The sheriff took Locke McCormick to a hypnotist to hopefully unlock some more memories, but uh, as expected, nothing really came out of that. (laughs) I don't know about you, but this seems pretty on brand for Florida. At least they're consistent with their cuckoo-ness. Let's hose off the evidence. Oh, yes. And now let's hire a hypnotist. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. A couple months later, a man found a box in a marsh which contained a bloody shirt and watch. The bloody shirt had been sitting in the water for too long, making the chances of getting a decent blood profile impossible. They were able to see that the shirt had the name Stanford written on the tag, though. Ultimately, the mark proved to be too faint and inconclusive, and it couldn't be used in the trial. More damning for Stanford was the fact that another forensic scientist determined that the watch belonged to Alan Stanford, a claim that Alan did not technically dispute, just saying, um, after the murder, I discovered that my watch was missing? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that sounds like a really likely story, Alan. Alan Stanford was a beloved member of the community who had done a lot of great things with his seat in the commission. So his community helped raise the $20,000 for his bill and then rallied together another $250,000 for his legal fees. This helped Stanford acquire a kick-ass attorney and adjusted for inflation, his community raised like $1.3 million. That's a lot of moolah. You could probably buy half a million machetes with that. As a side note, at the time of Francis Bemis's murder, Alan Stanford was released on bail. Coincidence? I think not! The defense argued that the sheriff, Athalia's husband, and the man who found the box of incriminating evidence in the swamp were all in cahoots to frame Alan. One defense attorney said, quote, Isn't it odd that police that had been adamantly looking for evidence for months and were unable to come up with any, and then Dewey, that's the man who found the box, was able to walk right up to it without stopping? I submit to you that Dewey placed the box there that morning, end quote. I don't know what Dewey, a local mechanic, would have to gain by framing Stanford, but I guess it's not completely out of the realm of possibilities. In the end, after two and a half hours of deliberation, Stanford was acquitted of the charges against him. I'm assuming not because the jury felt he was innocent, but simply because the prosecutors had not presented them with a case that left no room for reasonable doubt. In 1974, two elderly women were both brutally murdered in the same community, Frances Bemis and Athalia. Neither of the murders have been solved to this day. What do you think of this case? What do you make of it? Was this the work of a scorned husband, an angry neighbor, or a malicious stranger? Let me know what you think in the comments of the post I made today. I love seeing who you think done it. I was able to find a news article that basically said that after Alan Stanford was acquitted, the St. Augustine police closed the case. When questioned about why his department would not be pursuing any other leads in regards to this matter, Sheriff Dudley Garrett stated, quote, if I'd pursued this any further, I would be pursuing an innocent person, end quote. He continues, quote, do I think Stanford did it? 
Of course I do. I signed the complaint against him, and I do not agree with the verdict that was given today, end quote. After Alan Stanford was acquitted and asked for comment, his only concern was being reinstated in the $20,000 position that he had held with the commission before he was forced to take a leave of absence. But Commissioner Fred Green at the time said, quote, there is no way in hell that Stanford will ever be rehired, end quote. But what about now? I mean, forensic science wasn't as strong back in the 70s as it is now. We know that so many cases are being solved now that DNA is much more understood. Couldn't we test the items and find out for sure? I mean, yeah. Alan Sanford couldn't stand another trial, though, because of a little thing called double jeopardy. But we know the truth, at least, right? Yeah, that's all good in theory. However, by the time DNA testing became available, the murder weapon, Stanford's wristwatch, the blood-soaked clothing, and strands of hair were all cleared out of evidence years before, and that whatever remained was so badly compromised was untestable. Seriously, such a shame. It seems that this mystery will remain unsolved. Thank you all for joining me this week. I so appreciate your continued support, even during one of the busiest weeks of the entire year. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season and that you are able to spend it with those that you love. Don't forget to treat yourself too. I love buying myself things and putting them under the tree. (laughs) That way I make sure I get what I want. If you want to know how you can support this podcast, follow me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Visit my website at www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Tell a true crime loving friend or family member about me. But the best way to support this podcast would be to join me next week when together we'll discover did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?